guys. I can't uh I can't do it anymore. I won't I won't stand for it. There's there no end to it, you know? What what what's the point? You know, that's what I'm asking. Paramount Plus Like when will this end? You know, how many streaming services do we need? Pretty soon there are going to be so many that we basically have cable again, you know? Someone needs to invent a service that packages all of these together, and then we'll realize we should have just skipped all this and gone straight to cable exclusively on demand. Well, in any case, that's just what I'm thinking about right now, because I saw a commercial for Paramount Plus, and... I'm going to get it. You know I'm going to get it. I'm going to get them all. I don't... Well, this is the Death of Death podcast, where we proclaim Christ's victory over sin, death, and everything else. I'm your host, Nick, wearied and wounded by the amount of uh, streaming services available to us today. Um, here's what you do. You cancel one or two of the services you don't use anymore, like Hulu. Do you have Discovery Plus? If you have Discovery Plus, then you don't need Hulu. Cancel Hulu and send that $6 over to Trevor's GoFundMe. Um, It'll be linked in the show notes. I think that's what you should do. It's what we should all do. Um, I'm excited for today's episode. Uh, This was an idea originally proposed by Patreon supporter, member of the elect, uh, Cole Cleveland, who also happens to be my pastor at Grace Community Baptist Church. Uh, He thought it would be cool to give uh, kind of a short biography of some great theologians throughout history. Um, Well, who better to start with than John Owen, author of the book The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, uh, which is, of course, where we get the name for this podcast. So uh, John Owen was born in 1616. He was born in the village of uh, Stadhampton, which is in uh, the county of Oxfordshire. Uh, that's in southeast England, if you care about that kind of thing at all. Uh, he was of Welsh descent, but you shouldn't hold that against him. You know, a very small number of the Welsh lead perfectly normal and productive lives. Uh, the Owen family was not wealthy, although it seems that John Owen's uncle had some money. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. That's going to matter. He started going to Queen's College at Oxford University when he was 12 years old. And if that doesn't make you feel worthless, just worthless, then I don't, I don't know what will. Uh, honestly, I hope we all feel a little bit bad about ourselves at the end of this episode. Uh, maybe we'll all strive to be a little more like John Owen after this. Uh, he got his bachelor's when he was 16 and his master's when he was 19. Uh, When I was 19, Connor Freer and I were recording demos for an album that I never ended up finishing. Uh, So, I mean, I I know what it's like to accomplish a lot at such an early age. I wasn't working, working, or going to school, uh, you know, but I was reading a lot of punk biographies. So you can't say that I wasn't getting a good education at all, you know. 
1635, he was ordained as a deacon by the Bishop of Oxford and began a seven-year program, but he would never end up finishing that program because there were theological changes taking place at Queen's. And I couldn't get a lot of information uh, on the nature of these changes, uh, but every source I found said that uh, they were moving away from the Reformed consensus and moving in a more like Roman Catholic direction. I don't know if that means like a literal return to the like copyright Roman Catholic Church or if that's just sort of tendencies that were leading that direction. I, I couldn't really find out, but any historians out there who want to help me out with that, hit me up and uh, tell me, you know, hit me up and tell me what, what was going on. Uh, entangled in, in this were the beginnings of the English Civil War, uh, which was largely justified by the same type of uh, religious divisions. So this was kind of the beginning of, of all that. Um, debates at uh, Queens were almost becoming violent. I do remember someone uh, threatening to stab <laughs> a teacher um, in one of the accounts that I read of this. Uh, they may have actually been violent at some point, like it may have actually gotten there. Um, but I couldn't find anything that confirmed that. Uh, all of this led Owen to leave Oxford. He seemed to be aimless after leaving Oxford. Uh, he became a chaplain and a private tutor to the family of Sir Robert Dorner, who was the Earl of Carnarvon. Carnarvon. <laughs> Carnarvon. What a stupid, stupid culture this was. Um, <laughs> the worst names. I really, I meant to uh, put a pronunciation guide for all of these words. But um, yeah, so Sir Robert Dorner. Um, Dorner was uh, Earl of Carnarvon. <laughs> I nailed it, Carnarvon. Um, but uh, he's also uh, notably known as a Los Angeles police officer who was fired for reporting a fellow officer's excessive force. Uh, he went on a rampage all throughout Southern California and took the lives of four police officers and three civilians. Huh. What was that? Okay. Um, hold on, everybody. Dottie's, Dottie's trying to tell me something off screen here. Okay, go ahead. Oh? Oh. Okay, well, uh, all right. Well, this is embarrassing. It seems that I had confused Sir Robert Dorner, Earl of Carnarvon, with Christopher Dorner. Uh -huh. Was that? Nearly 400 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that is a, an enormous oversight on my part. This is uh, pretty embarrassing. No, it's okay. Uh, we're going to edit this out. I just... <laughs> I have like uh, five more pages of notes on the Rampager, only to find that it's not the right person. <laughs> this podcast was uh, about to get really interesting, and, and now I just have to go back to talking about the ins and outs of academic politics at Oxford in the 1630s, and you know, it was just a little, a little disappointing. It's okay. No! It's okay. It's okay. You think they would notice if I just talked about Christopher Dorner anyways? Like like I meant to? Like that was... 
All right, well, we'll just get on with it then. Let's see here. Okay, we've got the Dorner Facebook Manifesto, Final Mountain Standoff, Brief History of Big Bear, California, Can Bullets Explode in Fire, Reported Sightings of Death, Reported Sightings Since Death. Well, that, that is interesting. This really would have been uh, quite good if you hadn't said anything, Dottie. All right, here it is. Here's uh, him working as a chaplain for the Dorner family. After he worked for Dorner, who is apparently not to be confused with the police officer, he took on a similar uh, position to the family of John Lovelace. Lovelace. Lovelace? Lovelace. I feel like Lovelace would be a more English way to say it, but... Uh, I'm American, so Lovelace, yeah. Once the English Civil War started, he left for London with no place to stay and no friends or acquaintances. Uh, it seems that uh, Owen, back to Owen's uncle, uh, he they, they were on different sides of the Civil War. Um, I mentioned the uncle earlier, may have had some money. They were loyal to different sides, so... Um, Owen was siding with Parliament, and his uncle was siding with the Cavaliers or the Royalists. Um, this was effectively forfeiting any sort of inheritance from this very rich Negan. <laughs> Negan. <laughs> and this is why I don't do a video podcast, everybody. Negan, get off. After he worked for Dorner, who is apparently not to be confused with the police officer, he took on a similar position to the family of John Lovelace. Um, I'm not sure if that's Lovelace or Loveless. I feel like Loveless is a more English way to say it. Um, and once the English wo uh, Civil War started, he left for London uh, with no place to stay and no friends or acquaintances in the area. Backing up to Owen's uncle that I mentioned earlier, who may have had some money, uh, he... They were loyal to different sides of the English Civil War. So Owen was, John Owen was uh, loyal to the Parliament side, and his uncle sided with the Cavaliers or the Royalists. And uh, this was effectively forfeiting any sort of inheritance um, that John Owen might get from this very rich uncle. So we can see through this that Owen was a principled man who wouldn't suck up and compromise his principles for financial gain. Once in London, he started staying in Smithfield, apparently not the greatest part of London. It was like the red light district of its day, and uh, in addition to that, it was a place where a lot of Protestant martyrs had been killed, and it was on this spot, on the proverbial blood of past Protestants, that John Owen lived and started writing a book. And his first book was never published, you know, would have been a pretty epic story if, if it had been. But uh, his next book he published in 1642 called A Display of Arminianism. And uh, in the intro to this book, he said he was going after, quote unquote, the idol of free will. 
So he dedicated this book to a committee of religious leaders, and I couldn't find out much about them, but this brought Owen to their attention, and they returned the favor the next year in 1643 by making him the pastor of a congregation in Fordham, a village in Essex. Uh, He would be a pastor there for four years uh, until he moved to a new church in Coggeshall, which is another village in Essex right next to it. Um, So not far, but he did move on eventually. Um, It is recorded that he was very disappointed with the apathy of his parishioners. So he he did not like the state of affairs with the the souls of his people when he took over this church, and uh, it never really seemed to improve. While he was a, a pastor in Fordham in 1644, he met and married a woman named Mary Rook, Uh, They had 11 children together, but sadly and unbelievably, only one of the 11 children survived infancy. And this is attributed to poor weather leading to famine. Um, That one daughter who did survive actually grew up and got married, um, but even she died incredibly young. Uh, In fact, just after uh, Mary Rook died, um, apparently she died of tuberculosis soon after she was married, uh, so she just barely made it into adulthood and and passed away. Um, When John Owen and his dwindling family moved to Coggeshall, I guess that would be 1647, uh, he was replacing a, a pastor that was moving on to be a member of the Westminster Assembly. And although uh, he was initially happy for the new start and uh, the supposed revival uh, God was bringing to the area to the tune of 2,000 people attending every single Sunday, uh, Owen realized pretty soon that this devotion was artificial because it was imposed by law that these people attend church. And uh, it wasn't long before he once again was disappointed with the state of his congregation. Now, I can't imagine being a member of John Owens' congregation and being apathetic, you know. Uh, His books have moved me not only in doctrine, but in devotion to Christ. And and to hear that man preach every Sunday must have been something really special, even though it was reported that Owen was a harsh disciplinarian with his students in the university uh, so if any of that carried over into his um, his pastoring, I can imagine people not being a fan of the man, you know, but no one's perfect, you know. The, uh, the same year he moved his church to Coggeshall, uh, he published, that's right, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ in the very same year that he buried two of the ten children who wouldn't survive to adulthood. It's funny to me that John Owen is mostly known for works that argue against Arminianism. Uh, We already mentioned a display of Arminianism, uh, but the death of death, if you don't know, is a defense of limited atonement and an argument against universal atonement. So that book is also a refutation against, you know, one of the key tenets of Arminianism. And I only say it's funny because when I think of John Owen, I think of his commentary on Hebrews and the influence that he had on the Reformed Baptists, which I am a Reformed Baptist. This show is a Reformed Baptist show in a lot of ways. 
Uh, we, we talk about the London Baptist Confession a lot here, uh, but we're getting to that. I don't want to get to that until near the end because I think that's one of the coolest parts of, of his biography, and maybe that makes me a gigantic nerd. Uh, but it was around this time that Owen converted from Presbyterianism to a more congregationalist view of church government. And apparently the shift did not involve any theological change, uh, but only changes in his view of church government. Um, congregationalism is, is a movement within Puritism that leaned away from the form of Presbyterian church government for a more individualist, independent church government. Uh, it's very small today, accounting for only uh, about 0.5% of the worldwide Protestant population. Uh, but at the, at the time, it seemed a lot bigger, and it was shaking things up quite a bit. Um, the fact that he became a Congregationalist stuck out to me because I've always heard that the London Baptist Confession borrows a lot of language from the Savoy Decla Declaration, which is a Congregationalist confession from the 1600s. So Congregationalism has a connection to early Baptist confessionalism, uh, the other influential text on the London Baptist Confession is obviously the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was the Presbyterian Confession. Um, so Baptists were kind of this, you know, in between Presbyterian and Congregationalist. Um, so, you know, Congregationalism has had this connection to early Baptist um, confessionalism. And who is considered to be the most influential theologian uh, for Baptist covenant theology, you know, the sort of covenant theology you read in the London Baptist Confession, well, uh, none other than John Owen, even though John Owen was never a Baptist, uh, he is kind of one of the main uh, forces behind uh, Baptist covenant theology. And we'll get to that a little later still, but uh, for now I'll, I'll say that Congregationalists were paedo-baptist, uh, just like the Presbyterians, but they differed, like I said, on their views of church government. Uh, it's just an interesting connection that I don't uh, know what to make of. <laughs> uh, around the time Owen began these changes on his view of church government, uh, one notable change, although I couldn't confirm if this was a direct result of Congregationalism, uh, one notable change was him uh, changing his church's practice of the Lord's Supper to a weekly basis. Um, and I'm a big fan of that. I think you should do that. Uh, when the king was executed, jumping into more politics now, when the king was executed, Owen, who had always sided with Parliament in the conflict, was the go-to guy to give a celebratory sermon. And he chose not to celebrate it, but he did deliver a sermon. But he did deliver a sermon, um to, you know, as kind of this pro-parliament guy. Uh, so his many sermons and appearances um, for that cause brought him to the attention of Oliver Cromwell. You know, he, he went on to do many of these speeches and, and sermons um, in, in favor of parliament. And, uh, th and then Oliver Cromwell, uh, the military leader, discovered him. So he became friends with Oliver Cromwell and kind of an associate, and he began accompanying him on many uh, adventures, you know, a reality show I think could be good for at least a season and a half. Um, in 1649, he, be, he uh, came with Cromwell to the invasion of Ireland and began preaching in Dublin, and he actually stayed there for a while after Cromwell left. 
uh, feeling for the first time that his ministry was bearing fruit. Um, unfortunately, it was only the Irish. You know, okay. I, I'm sorry for that one. That was that was wrong of me. White on white racism is one of, if not the funniest thing to me in the world. Uh, so I make a lot of jokes like that, but there's nothing wrong with the Irish. It's not like they're Italians or anything. Uh, he made a trip to Scotland the next year in 1650, and although I couldn't find the details, the politics and divisions there led him to uh, leave behind his work with the army, and uh, much like he left Oxford 13 years earlier, he decided to return to academic pursuits, and most likely due to his political connections, he was able to return to Oxford. He was now the dean, putting him in a unique position to protect the theological purity of the university. And, uh, you know, it's the day of reckoning, papists. May the Christian Lord guide my hand against your Roman popery. That's uh, from Gangs of New York. Should all go watch that movie. It was in 1656 that John Owen published what is probably his most well-known book, The Mortification of Sin. In this book, he talks about the necessity of the Christian fighting against sin their entire lives as if it were a battle, because it is. And this is where the famous quote comes from, the one that graces many cool t-shirts with skulls, uh, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Um, so throughout the remainder of the 1650s, uh, Owen became critical of the new government um, under Parliament. I can uh, empathize with that. He, uh, he opposed Oliver Cromwell, uh, who was once his good friend. Um, he opposed him becoming king. And uh, this obviously caused a rift between them and did damage to John Owen's political connections. Um, Cromwell died in 1658, and his son Richard Cromwell uh, took his place and continued in the same trend that his father had. And apparently, uh, this, this made Owen even more uh, zealous to kind of fight against the new government, and he gathered a congregation of very uh, dissatisfied folks, I think you could say. And uh, through what was only described as a complicated series of events, it's the most detailed explanation I got, uh, this congregation moved to undermine the new government, and this was unsuccessful. In 1660, Charles II became king, the monarchy was reinstalled, and the Church of England rejected Protestants. Bummer for them. Uh, John Owen, I, I thought at the time that the Church of England was Protestant. I couldn't find an explanation for, for how that was presented in almost every source I read. Um, so go figure. Uh, <laughs> bummer for them. Uh, John Owen was now considered kind of like an enemy of the state. And in 1661, his house was raided and a few boxes of pistols were confiscated from him. Uh, but, you know, that was the 1660s. It was barbaric. We've advanced so much as a human race. Um, you don't ever see cops breaking into people's houses anymore and confiscating stuff. That's a complete thing of the past. Um, after this, he published a few books that hailed the new king as the greatest Protestant on earth. 
I'm not really sure what that was about, but it seems pretty obvious to me he was trying to avoid being targeted by the throne. Um, that's a move I do not respect, but hey, it is stupid to die for your political beliefs. And I believe that. Uh, the, <laughs> the dust settled uh, by the end of the 1660s, and though Owen kept a low profile mostly, uh, he did continue publishing books, and it was around this time that he posed for the most famous portrait of him, uh, if not the only, it might be the only one, uh, but that's the one you'll see if you do a Google image, uh, image search of uh, John Owen. That was in 1668. In 1670, Owen was pastoring a small church of about 30 people, and when another local pastor, Joseph Carroll, passed away, their congregations merged under Owen's leadership. Uh, Carroll's congregation consisted of about 100 people, um, so Owen's congregation grew by nearly five times, um, just like that. And this era of his sermons are considered to be the best preaching he ever did in his life. Well, in 1675, his wife Mary died, leaving John alone once again. Um, she died just before um, his only living child died right after her wedding from tuberculosis. You remember that. In the next year, 1676, he was remarried to a woman, a woman named Dorothy Doily. Doily. It's got a D and an apostrophe in it, so I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But uh, she had also lost her spouse, a rich man named Thomas Doily, and that's the way to do it, man. You know, the woman of your dreams passes away. Nothing you can do about that. So find a rich widow, you know, finish your life in comfort. I'm kidding. Obviously, um, if Ashley died, I'm done. I uh, will live quite monastically, uh, get a few more cats. I'll just be that guy with the books and the cats and that's how I'll go out. And that's fine. Uh, all right. We're going to wrap up the life of John Owen momentarily, but First, I have to fulfill a promise. I've been teasing you for the whole episode about Baptist Covenant Theology. Well, I'm no tease, and it's time to get into it. Owen was a paedo-baptist all of his life. He never was a Baptist. He never stopped believing in paedo-baptism. However, he is one of the most influential theologians on Baptist Covenant Theology, so how is that possible? All right, if you you're not a theology nerd, hold tight, and I will try to make this make as much sense as possible. There's part of it that doesn't even make sense to me, so I'm already simplifying it, but I'm going to make it like super simple, even for people who just don't care about this at all. So at the time, some believed that the Old Covenant, which would include the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, basically all of the Old Testament, um, when you, when I say old covenant, think old Testament. When I say new covenant, think new Testament, um, believed that the old covenant was an extension of the covenant of works and the covenant of works was the covenant that Adam and Eve were under in the garden of Eden. And that's the covenant that they broke when they ate the forbidden fruit. So the Presbyterians largely believed that the old and new covenants were two different administrations of the covenant of grace and i know that sounds confusing the covenant of grace is the covenant that we in you know as new testament christians are under right now uh, so the question is was the old covenant also part of the covenant of grace 
or um, but just like a different form of it. Uh, Presbyterians believed that it was essentially the same covenant, just different forms, administrations, different ways of, of you know, doling the covenant out. Um, I, I'm sorry to any theological purists out there. I'm simplifying this for the benefit of our listeners. And let's be honest, I'm simplifying it for myself as well. Um, so, for instance, on the issue of baptism, the Presbyterians believed circumcision was the old covenant form of baptism, and baptism was the new covenant form of circumcision. So they were, there was a one-to-one comparison. There's, they're the same thing administered differently. Um, so that's why they baptize babies. Um, again, there's, there's more to it than that, but that's all you really need to know for this to make sense. So the Presbyterians believe that the Old Covenant was part of the Covenant of Grace and that both the Old and New Covenants were just different forms of the Covenant of Grace. Meanwhile, antinomians believed the Old Covenant was part of the Covenant of Works. And John Owen, however, came at it from a third position and he said that the Old Covenant was not the Covenant of Works, nor was it part of the Covenant of Grace. Um, or I guess I should say the covenant of grace. It is part of the covenant of grace. It's just not the covenant of grace. So this is essentially Baptist covenant theology. Uh, The Baptists don't believe that the new and old covenants are just different administrations of the covenant of grace. Baptism is not just a new covenant version of circumcision. The old covenant was a promise form of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is the new covenant and new covenant is the covenant of grace. It was, uh, the old covenant was like the stairs that lead up to the covenant of grace. So the Baptists used John Owen's federalism. Um, it was, it was already in harmony with their theology, but John Owen brought like a new legitimacy to their views, you know, because if this like undeniable giant of reformed theology of like Protestant of the Protestant movement, if you will, agrees with us, then the burden of proof is on you, Presbyterians. And and there's even quotes in a book. I'll, I don't have it out here, but I'll uh, tell you about it in a second. But um, there's quotes from a Baptist basically saying, I don't know what John Owen would say to this argument, but, you know, it's it's up to him to kind of decide for himself because he seems to be contradicting paedo-baptism with his views. So if you want a great book on the subject, um, specifically, pick up Pascal Denault's The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology. In that book, Denault theorizes that Owen just never considered the implications of his views of the covenant on the doctrine of paedo-baptism. I understand that. Honestly, I'm, I'm reading a book called Simply Trinity right now by Matthew Barrett, and you know he talks a lot about simplicity and a lot about the Trinity, as the title would suggest, and I've you know, been involved in both of these doctrines over my time as a Christian, especially the last few years, but never stopped to wonder how they affected one another. And, you know, if, if I'd never had, then I, I might have held erroneous views of the Trinity or erroneous views of simplicity. And it wasn't until someone came along and pointed it out to me that I started to form better views on that. So it's possible that John Owen just never had paedo-baptism be part of his thought process on federalism. You know, it happens. 
Um, you know, he, he can only know so much. He can only rate and think about so much. And he obviously did, did in his time, you know. And finally, Nehemiah Cox, the Baptist theologian, uh, was writing a two-volume book on the covenants. And he was presenting the Baptist federalism, which was very similar to John Owen's theology. Uh, however, when John Owen published his commentary on Hebrews, and specifically the portion on Hebrews 8 that talks about the New Covenant, Cox considered this to be a perfect conclusion to his own work, and he chose not to finish the second volume of his work. So a prominent Baptist theologian considers Owen's work uh, on the covenants to be so in line with his own teaching that he chooses not to finish his, his book. So it is theorized that if John Owen lived long enough to work out the implications of his view, he would have died a Baptist. So let's finish up now. The end of Owen's life is sad. There's no reason to whitewash that. He survived his wife and every single one of his 11 children. He died in 1683, having lost his faith in the Protestant movement. That doesn't mean that he didn't believe Protestant theology anymore, but he considered the Protestant cause unsuccessful and doomed to failure. And he died in the midst of a depression. However, anyone alive today has the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Owen was not right. The Protestant movement was successful, and Reformed theology specifically has had a resurgence in the last few years. Um, the, I mean, the last, like, 20 years, really. I mean, I'm getting old. Uh, and our member of the elect, Nick Quint, will be uh, glad to know that the preservation of John Owen's work is mostly attributed to John Wesley. Um, Nick loves Wesley. Uh, Wesley republished a lot of his works. Otherwise, Owen may have faded, not entirely into obscurity, but definitely out of the level of prominence that, he, that his legacy enjoys today. Um, and, you know, so that's kind of random that a Wesleyan, the Wesleyan, <laughs> would, would kind of be responsible for preserving John Owen um, to the point where Banner of Truth eventually started publishing his stuff, and I think that's that's really like what made John Owen so available today was Banner of Truth. That's just my opinion. All right, that's the life of John Owen. I mean, not everything, but we covered the most important stuff, and uh, you'd really have to read a full biography to get all of the information. Um, this this guy had a long and accomplished life. Uh, he was only 67 when he died, but that's not necessarily young either. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, thanks again to Cole Cleveland for suggesting this. I'm hoping to do more podcasts like this in the future. Uh, go over to deathofdeath.net for all of your death of death needs. You can sign up for the Patreon subscription, give to Trevor's GoFundMe, sign up for the email list. Uh, head to the store and get some merch. And please, please, please click the survey button <laughs> and take the survey if you haven't yet. I need all of your responses and time is running out. Finally, I did an interview on the Benchin in the Kitchen podcast this last week, so keep an eye out for that. I'm not sure when it's dropping, but I'll remind you when it does. And that's all I've got for today. So I'll talk to you guys next week.
Well, no, Dottie. I, I think it's incredibly possible that Christopher Dorner is still alive. Yes, he could. Yes, he could. Yes. I, I don't care. You're wrong. I'm, I'm not saying the man is alive. I'm saying it's possible.